Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Zidrin coming to you one last time this year with another roundup episode of some short news pieces that I made for WBGO News during the second half of the year for their segment that they call The Art of the Story. It seems like it was a match made in heaven, ultimately, when The Third Story joined up with The Art of the Story. And I jumped in feet first and tried to figure out what it would mean for me to take this thing that I do here with you and apply it to news radio, I guess. I do know that they sent me out into the world with a microphone and a mission, and I just gathered a bunch of tape. I first went to the Montreal Jazz Festival. There was a full-length, very long and extensive episode based on my week that I spent there that you can hear in the Third Story archive. But there were also a couple of short newsy pieces that ran on WBGO Radio, so we begin our experience in Montreal. Then I went to the Umbria Jazz Festival in Italy, and then I spent the summer and early fall telling some stories about New York. There's a feature on Spanish singer-songwriter Lau Noah and her performance at Joe's Pub. There's another one on multifaceted man about town Michael Thurber. There's another one on the late Polish jazzman Tomasz Stanko, and yet another on Tyshawn Sori. Jesse Harris in Paris. I spoke to him about performing abroad. My friend Jorge Drexler playing at Town Hall in New York. Larry Goldings just recently. And we wrapped up with Christian McBride just a couple of weeks ago talking about his residency at the Village Vanguard. So I just wanted to play these little segments for you to complete the year. It has been such a pleasure, such an honor, such a privilege to get to make this show for you during this, my ninth year of the third story. Who knows what next year has in store. So this is the best of the third story on the art of the story from 2022. As you know, third-story.com is the place to go for the archive. Sign up, subscribe, get involved. WBGO.org slash studios is where you can go to check out all the award-winning content that they've been laying out. And patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is the place you can go to help me replenish my supply of batteries for my mobile recorder. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it at the beginning of next year. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. I'm Leo Sidrin with The Art of the Story. The Montreal Jazz Festival started in 1980 and grew into one of the largest jazz gatherings in the world. In fact, they boast that they're ranked as the world's largest by Guinness World Records. When it comes to live music size is not all that matters, but the Montreal Jazz Festival is definitely impressive, featuring 10 days, 20 stages, hundreds of concerts, and thousands of fried potatoes, because Montreal is, of course, the home of that dish that you don't want to tell your doctor about, poutine. The majority of the concerts are outdoors, free, and open to the public. The lineup is diverse and there is something for everyone. After a two-year slowdown due to COVID, the Montreal Jazz Festival is back this year and the streets of the Place des Festivals, the epicenter of the event, are buzzing. Every afternoon of the festival, the Urban Science Brass Band parades through the grounds like Pied Pipers gathering a trail of people behind them and sounding the call that the evening's events are commencing. A jazz festival of this size can be a challenge for anyone who suffers from the fear of missing out. On opening night, for example, audiences were tasked with deciding between concerts by the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marsalis, Christian McBride, Joel Fromm, Gogo Penguin, Emmanuel Wilkins, Corey Wong, and Julian Lodge, who you hear behind me right now. All of those were happening within the space of a couple of hours. After two years of waiting, concert goers are now confronted with an embarrassment of riches. How one handles that many choices is a test of strength and conviction. Fortunately, there are no wrong answers. But there is some question of whether or not this is a return to life as it was before COVID or a new reality. Drummer Dave King says he's traveling lighter this year than ever. 
We're just rolling really lean and mean. Yeah. So I don't even have a stick pack. How is that musically? I mean, I like to bring my cymbals. I just, they get lost a lot in Europe. And I guess right now it's, we were notified, just don't even try. And then it became, don't even try to bring a bag to check. Bring a carry-on only. So we were rolling with carry-ons. So what's cool about that is you don't have to worry about bringing your suit with you. Nope, I don't. I don't have to bring my um, my. You know, I like to wear that Dick Tracy suit from 1990, the old NBA player suit I used to wear. Can't bring that one. Can't bring it. Doesn't fit anymore in the in the um, carry on. Dave King is not alone in dealing with the sartorial struggles of life on the road. I found bassist Christian McBride on his way to the mall. Seriously. Now I gotta go to the mall and find a couple of pair of jeans. It won't be too hard. This is my last chance before I head to Europe tomorrow for three weeks. Because you know, once I get to Europe, you know, you're not gonna find no plus sizes over there. Philadelphia size pants. <laughs> That's <is> right. <laughs> That's Christian McBride proving that jazz musicians are just like everyone else. They put their pants on one leg at a time. The question of where jazz is headed continues to evolve. But I'll be in Montreal all week for the festival. I'm Leo Sidrin, WBGO News. It's Saturday night in Montreal, and thousands of people have descended on the Place de Festival to hear saxophonist Kamasi Washington. While plenty of devoted fans have come from all over to check out the Jazz Festival this year, others simply happen to have discovered the free outdoor concert. A young couple from Toronto consider their surroundings and ask that age-old question. Well, what is jazz? What do you think it is? Organized confusion. Organized confusion may not fully explain the music, but it is a fair description of a festival of this size. Because much of the Montreal Jazz Festival happens in open air, plenty of people who have come to the city for other reasons find themselves thrust into the mix. There are a lot of vectors coming and going on the grounds. For example, this year the festival coincides with the North American Irish Dance Championships and the streets are filled with young dancers in costume on their way to compete. What do they make of all this? Have you ever danced to jazz music? Typically, if you dance to something, it like has a steady beat and stuff, and I don't know enough about jazz. To know if it has that. Yeah. Drummer and self-described beat scientist Makaya McCraven can help answer that question. His three-night residency at the festival this year showcased the many sides of his music, from hip-hop to the avant-garde. Whatever you call it, it's music you can dance to and definitely connects with the audience. McRaven would prefer not to call it by any particular name. Terms of genres are always going to be limiting, yeah. and they serve a purpose for speaking about something that's abstract. In a lot of places these days, jazz festival means music festival. Yes. Like I saw one act I was walking by, I'm not sure who it was, but it was like, it's like her, and she's got like a DJ that's got like a drum pad. Oh, Noga Eras. I'm like, wow, there's not even like an acoustic instrument on stage. He's right. Israeli singer Noga Eras might not be the most expected act for a jazz festival, but she certainly knows where she is and even pointed out the irony of how she got here, starting out with jazz and pivoting to pop to get the gig. I grew up listening to jazz. I tried to be a jazz vocalist. At some point, I was like, all the others are so much better than me. I really wanted to perform. Montreal Jazz Festival, because I heard so much about it. I'm here, even though, you know, this is not really jazz. There's no question that rising star vocalist Samara Joy is really jazz, whether it's July in Montreal or... Samara just graduated from college a year ago, and this is the first big jazz festival she's ever been to. She's not sure how she feels about the organized chaos. A big festival like this? I haven't even really been to festivals like this before, so... It's cool to be a part of in this way and have it be received 
pretty well since it's kind of like a small, intimate set, and I, I kind of like those spaces better. True, it's not a small, intimate space where rising stars like Samara Joy honed their chops, but there's at least one advantage to the festival format, and singer Gregory Porter sums it up nicely. The audience is quite hungry for music and to be together. Yeah. The whole thing that's involved is, you know, communing with the audience and having, you know, conversations with other musicians and a slice of normal life. Yeah. Uh, at least the, the abnormal life that is normal for, for musicians, traveling musicians. However you label it, a festival like this gives people a way to gather not only around the music, but also around each other. In these ever-changing times, musicians might just be the most prepared to handle unpredictable circumstances and teach the rest of us to do the same. From the Montreal Jazz Festival, I'm Leo Sidrin, WBGO News. Umbria Jazz is one of Europe's most famous festivals. It's nearly 50 years old. Started in 1973 by Carlo Pagnota, a man who is now in his 90s and still oversees the festival today. You'd never know he's 90, though. He looks like he's maybe 70. I met him the other day and asked him what his secret was, and although his English is not so great, his answer was clearly red wine. Jazz is, of course, often referred to as America's art form, and although the conditions that created the music are distinctly American, without Europe, it seems that jazz wouldn't survive. Every summer, hundreds of the greatest practitioners of the music and hundreds of thousands of fans gather across Europe at the major festivals to come together and celebrate it. These gatherings provide a much-needed opportunity for what the musicians referred to as the hang. Producer Matt Pearson, in Umbria for a bit of business and a bit of hang, explained it this way. It is an American music and we love our homeland, but in reality, if you ignore the borders, the base of live performance of jazz and most jazz-adjacent music is in Europe. It's been since I first got in the business. What do you do in July? Oh, well, you go to Europe and you do a handful of the festivals and you get to do a lot of hanging. There's another thing about the hang in an environment like this, because it's not just, oh, we're going to hang and we're going to go home. Like that idea that you're with people and then you go somewhere that's not your home, that way then your home becomes the people you're working with. Mm -hmm. And your connection with people is that strong. One of the most common conversations in festivals like Umbria involves some form of the question, what is a jazz festival? Enzo Capua, a creative consultant for the Umbria Jazz Festival, gave me his read on the question. We have several venues here, okay? Open air, also indoor, like the theater. But also we have a big arena for 5,000 people. This is a region, Umbria, a sponsor of the festival. So we work with public money, and they want to see people everywhere. So that's why we do pop. Enzo explained how and why there's room for everything at an Italian jazz festival. Meanwhile, drummer Terence Higgins was simply concerned about leaving room for dessert. We're on our way to dinner, yeah. but I'm sure it's going to be like a three-course meal. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking for some good pasta, you know, so in Italy, so, you know. you got to eat after the gig. You can't yeah. eat like you know that what? before the Yesterday gig. Yesterday we did eat before the gig. Yeah. It was brutal. Because we had three courses. We had, like, pasta. Yeah. Then we had more pasta. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was like... Uh, third course or yeah. something else, and it was like, we couldn't even move after that. Saxophonist Dave Koz also considered the culinary questions of road life in Italy. You have to eat a lot, and you have to have the dessert, you have a great meal, and you talk the language, and you, you see the people, and you see these old buildings that have been here for centuries, and then you can kind of put that into your performance. While Dave Koz was marveling at the majesty of ancient Italy, singer Kurt Elling was just trying to get through the night and hoping for a good audience. Listen, I just hope there's people out there in the audience who want to hear what we're about to do. I'm in good voice. 
the band is hot. There's going to be dinner at some point, but the most important is like, is there people out there? Because I really, we got something that I want to lay on them, and that's all I care about. From Umbria Jazz in Perugia, Italy, I'm Leo Sidrin, WBGO News. As they say, New York is the concrete jungle where dreams are made of. And while so many aspiring artists moved to New York to fulfill their dreams, Lau Noah moved here by chance and then stumbled into hers. Taking the stage at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater this week, Noah spent her first moments in silence, perched on a high stool alone at the center of the stage, holding her classical guitar in her lap, surveying the audience with a smile. The only sound was of collective anticipation and the signature Joe's Pub subway rumble below, you know, from the roots of the jungle. Then the music began. First, a stirring from the guitar, followed by the voice rising, celestial, a kind of universal lament. Lao Noah's music somehow defies category while also managing to belong to various places and times at once. Cuban trova, Spanish copla, Mexican ranchera, West Village folk, they're all in there. Or maybe she's tapping into the same source that so much great music taps into, the mother melody. It's a sound not quite heard like this before, but it's also something strikingly familiar. When Lau Noah moved to New York from her native Spain at the age of 19, she did not yet play the guitar. But an unexpected encounter with that instrument would ultimately change everything. She picked up a friend's guitar one day and immediately wrote a song on it. And within the course of just a few short years, by the age of 28, she's become one of the most intriguing and seductive new voices on it. And even though she has connected with so many of her fans and collaborators online rather than in town, she finds value in the hustle and the struggle of being in New York. I talked to her before her show. It doesn't matter that I'm in New York. I could be anywhere else. I think you do something good and the internet has this power. But I don't think I could have reached the level I'm at as a musician and as a songwriter if I did not live in New York. It's so much hassling and so much brutality in so many ways. It's so demanding and that makes you a better musician. How does brutality translate into art? As Lau sees it, she has to live it in order to sing about it. My job is to live an interesting life, and then the muses come. For her, the muses also hide in the shadows of the unknown. Lau is proudly self-taught, even though she counts among her friends and fans some of the most accomplished musical minds on the planet, like Jacob Collier, Chris Thiele, Larry Goldings, and Blake Mills. Still, she's fiercely devoted to her own singular and even mystical form of finding the music on her own terms. I think my story is one of, of loneliness, and most times a chosen kind of loneliness. I've learned a lot by not being with anybody, and I think it's a beautiful part of my music. It's not a bad part of it. Solitary as her story may be, it hasn't kept Lau from making deep and meaningful musical connections with others. At Joe's Pub, she was joined on stage at various times by singers Julia Easterlin, Ana Carmela Ramirez, and Elliot Skinner. Lau Noah's dreamy music sounds like the soundtrack to a story still yet to be told. Maybe it's the soundtrack to her own dream, and we're all characters in it, if we choose to be. For WBGO News, I'm Leo Sidrin. On a recent night at Roulette in Brooklyn, 
some of the biggest names in jazz, including Chris Potter, Robbie Coltrane, Joe Lovano, Ambrose Akinmusery, and more, came together to celebrate and perform the music of the late trumpeter-composer Tomas Stanko in a free concert. So who was Tomas Stanko, and what brought all these people together in his honor? To answer that question, I want to tell you this story. When Tomas Stanko first came to New York, he experienced it with the wide-eyed enthusiasm of a young man. He knew right away that New York was one of the most important places in his life. But in fact, Stanko was not a young man when he first arrived in New York. He was already in his early 60s, having spent much of his life and career behind the Iron Curtain, living and working in his native Poland and traveling around Europe under the strict control of the communist authorities. Early on, he had relied on the Voice of America radio network to connect him to the American jazz scene. And the sounds he heard fostered his dream of someday making it to New York City to experience that scene for himself. Meanwhile, he developed his lyrical sound with his tone of Slavic melancholy and the noir atmosphere that he conjured in his music. Maybe because of those sensibilities and because his own personal story was so dramatic, he was often lauded as an ambassador of the European jazz scene. But as his daughter and latter-day manager Anya explains, Stanko was not particularly interested in those kinds of categorizations. My dad was not very much into making the division, you know, he didn't feel a part of European jazz or the Polish jazz. He was just feeling jazzman, you know. Still, even Tomas acknowledged that there was something unique about his experience that contributed to his sound. And rather than political, it was geographical. He was born in this part of the world where the light is totally different than it's, for example, here in New York or in the States or something. So he has a different mellow, you know, like more kind of cloudy feeling because of the light he had. As Anya explained, some of that cloudy light may have been the byproduct of the lifestyle that Stanko and his contemporaries were living. Also, you know, there were like stories that uh, in the green rooms they were playing, then you could touch the wall and the hashish kind of from, you know, that there was so many hashish that it was even attaching to walls, you know. So he was a jazzman and doing really rock and roll. How, one might wonder, did the jazz musicians under the communist regime manage to live like rock stars, finding so much freedom in their music and in their behavior? Part of it, according to Anya, was simply because the censors didn't understand what was happening in the music. Jazz is a music with no words, so the Polish censorship didn't find it so dangerous. There was this freedom which is built in jazz. It's kind of the organic part of jazz. It was not so obvious for the officers. Jazz musicians, they were able to sneak in through the system. Stanko passed away in 2018, and since then, Anya has been organizing free annual shows in Poland to honor his memory. On what would have been his 80th birthday, she helped to put together this special New York performance, bringing together some of his most cherished collaborators from around the world to celebrate him. Tomasz Stanko's story is a reminder that jazz is not only a kind of music, but also a way of traveling. What does Anya hope people remember about her father? I would love they felt the freedom my dad had in music, no compromises, doing what you love, and making the connection with the universe through jazz. For WBGO News, I'm Leo Sidrin. Ladies and gentlemen in New York City, how are you feeling this evening? As we know, New York City attracts people from all over the world. It's the people that make the city. Spalding Gray once said that he knew he couldn't live in America and he wasn't ready to move to Europe, so he moved to an island off the coast of America. New York City. Of course, he didn't know about Little Island when he said that. That's a tiny urban park that opened recently, suspended over the Hudson River just off the west side of Manhattan. 
On a recent Sunday night at Little Island's Amphitheater, as Michael Thurber's show came to a close, he thanked his audience for their open-mindedness. And thank you so much for being so open to a lot of different music. The truth is we all listen to a lot of different music. The lie is that we all only play one style of music. Doing concerts like this and having audiences like you, it makes the world a better place. We get to experience a whole bunch of different beauty. You know, why lock yourself off? There's so much good stuff out there. So I love you. This statement of intent came after 90 minutes of what could be called a proof of concept. In Michael's case, his concept is expansive and often unexpected. His original songs are confessional, conversational, contemporary. I just want to be happy. I just want to have a good life. I just want to make my family proud. Michael is an accomplished instrumentalist. His first instrument was the bass. He's a composer and a producer in a multitude of styles, from musical theater to classical concertos, bluegrass to pop. And his live shows seem designed to shine a light on his love of that diversity. In the space of an evening, he welcomed a parade of friends to the stage, including, for example, the main mandolin man about town, Chris Thiele, and violin virtuoso Tessa Lark, who joined him on stage to play part of a Bach violin concerto adapted for fiddle, mandolin, and upright bass. Is that all right? You want to hear some J.S. Bach? Clarinet player Mark Dover, Broadway actor Daniel J. Watts, Clyde and Gracie Lawrence from the band Lawrence, and esteemed saxophonist Tavon Pennicott all made memorable appearances during a show that swung from Motown to Appalachian music and everything in between. Despite that somewhat disparate presentation, it all makes sense in Thurber's world. Rather than playing like a variety show, it comes across more like a manifesto, a kind of radical affirmation. Michael explained to me how he approaches putting together these live events. Going on stage is a privilege, and if you're going to do it, you should go for broke. Get super real and go super hard. If people are going to be with me for 90 minutes, I really want to give them something that's gonna make them feel something. I think a lot before I go out there so that then when I can get out there, like I don't have to think and I can just try to transmit as much energy as possible. Michael Thurber came of age when the internet was already a reality. And despite having attended Juilliard for both classical and jazz bass, it may be fair to say that YouTube was as much a teacher to him as any professor he ever had. That sense of music made free from category and untethered to a linear history is crucial to him and he tends to work with other people who feel the same way. I gravitate towards people whose major leaning is openness. That's sort of my major leaning. You know, I have the stylistic center of gravities, but it's mostly about like an openness and a willingness to like explore and to try things and a real seriousness about music. During COVID, Michael started releasing solo music and began in earnest to try and tie together the loose ends of his musical life. And while his particular journey is specific and somewhat unusual, it's clear that he's leaning on his friends to help him find his way home. For WBGO News, I'm Leo Sidrin. There's an expression that says the map is not the territory. It means that whatever symbol system you use to try and understand your world, the lines on a map, for example, or the awards given to somebody for drawing those lines. That symbol system can never really capture our everyday experience. The map will never take the place of the real world or the way we move through it. Maps are a way of categorizing our ability to find ourselves in the onrush of history, but they are not history itself. When it comes to the arts, it's particularly fraught because the arts are themselves a kind of symbol system for understanding the life and times of an artist. In the case of the arts, the map can include musical notation, 
as well as awards, credits, reviews, and more. But none of that tells the whole story. Take, for example, Tyshawn Sori. He's an improvising drummer who was sought out by the likes of Vijay Iyer, John Zorn, Roscoe Mitchell, Bill Laswell, Lage Lund, Steve Coleman, Steve Lehman, and more to collaborate with them. But these are just points on the map, as is his winning a MacArthur Fellowship and being referred to in the New York Times as the composer of the year. As a band leader, Sori has released a steady output of work, from electronic to free improvisation, through composed pieces to revisionist standards, and he will have released two more solo projects by the end of this year. He's a professor of composition at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also a black man who was raised in inner city Newark, New Jersey, and who was kept in special education for much of his childhood, but who eventually found familiarity in the classical avant-garde and acceptance in some of the most prestigious institutions in America. These are all points on the map with his name on it, but they don't begin to capture the life and artistic territory of Taishan Sori, nor would he want them to. Earlier this year, he premiered his composition Monochromatic Light Afterlife at the Rothko Chapel in Houston. It was a fitting place to do it because he wrote it as a tribute, or maybe better put, as a conversation with the composer Morton Feldman's piece, Rothko Chapel. And then last week, Monochromatic Light was restaged in New York at the Park Avenue Armory. Well, that piece in particular is dealing with a lot of subjects. First of all, the Rothko Chapel itself, which is uh, really influential for me. Another level of inspiration, of course, is Morton Feldman's composition of the same name, titled Rothko Chapel. Morton Feldman is a tremendous, if not possibly the biggest influence for me as a composer. So that composition is in conversation with Feldman. The piece is also in conversation with trauma. Morton Feldman's Rothko Chapel composition, for example, deals with ancestral trauma and in much the same way that his music deals with ancestral trauma, so does monochromatic light afterlife as well, uh, dealing with more specifically black ancestral trauma through the interpolation of the spiritual, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. The idea was not to create a beautiful canvas for a viewer to look at. Like this goes beyond the idea of try to paint something that looks nice or something like that or something that's decorative. Like, it's not really about that. It was really about expressing um, these really human emotions uh, that one feels or whatever. Sometimes not super happy emotions all the time. When I talked to him this summer, it was initially about his recent work, The Armory Show. Plus, he had just released his album called Mesmerism, a trio recording with bassist Matt Brewer and pianist Aaron Deal. And his next record, called The Off-Off-Broadway Guide to Synergism, it's a three-disc set of live recordings captured at the Jazz Gallery, again with Aaron Deal, and this time with bassist Russell Hall and saxophonist Greg Osby, would be coming out later in the year. In fact, that comes out at the end of this month. But quickly it became clear that, like he told me, it's not about any kind of hierarchy, but rather how do these different things keep me alive? These boxes that we talk about, I mean, they don't exist. You know, we, we make these boxes ourselves. That's the territory we wound up exploring. For WBGO News, I'm Leo Sidrin. On a recent Wednesday evening on the Rue Saint-Denis in Paris, the American singer-songwriter Jesse Harris sat alone at a small Lebanese restaurant considering the merits of his falafel sandwich. I always come here, particularly if it's a gig where I'm singing. I don't like to eat a big meal before singing, and I don't like something to be too salty or to be too creamy or blah, blah, blah. And this is kind of, it fits the bill, and it's really good. 
On this particular night, Harris was singing. He was presenting his latest record, Silver Balloon, at the historic and intimate Bezay Salé Club. Taking the stage, he tried out some of his new French skills. On joue la musique d'un nouvel album qui s'appelle Silver Balloon. We're continuing in the order of the album. This one is called Out in the Storm. Harris made Silver Balloon with his longtime friend and collaborator, drummer Kenny Wallison. The two played nearly all the instruments on the project. But in Paris, he called on his local band to bring the music to life. Local only in the sense that they're based in France. The musicians included American expats Christopher Thomas on bass, Jeff Boudreau on drums, and Israeli guitarist Daniel Mizrahi. All three have called Paris home for years. In recent years, Jesse himself has been back and forth to Paris more and more, flirting with the expatriate life. Paris, there is something here. There's a reason people continue to <laughs> gravitate towards it. Sometimes I think about coming over and getting an apartment, but I'm so settled in New York. You know, I got a whole community of people I work with and play with there. Indeed. Jesse Harris is maybe best known as a member of the New York singer-songwriter scene. His most famous song, Don't Know Why, was recorded by Nora Jones on her legendary Come Away With Me album, which celebrated its 20th anniversary this year. What many people may not realize is that the song was recorded first on Jesse's self-titled album a few years before. Waited till I saw the sun I don't know why I didn't come Since then, he's gone on to write songs for Melody Gardot, Madeleine Peru, Nikki Yanofsky, and Liz Wright, among many others. So what is it like for an English-language songwriter to perform abroad? I think it's the same way that we enjoy music that's in Portuguese or French or Spanish, you know, or whatever, any other language. It's funny how when something's in another language, you, you don't mind. You enjoy it anyway. Whether or not the lyrics are understood, Jesse explains that these new songs reflect the uncertain times in which they were written. I, at least, was embracing a kind of chaos. That absolutely was influenced by the times in our world right now. What is certain is that Jesse Harris will perform Silver Balloon at Zebulon in Los Angeles on November 5th and at the Sultan Room in Brooklyn on November 9th. Whether or not he prepares for those shows with a falafel sandwich remains to be seen. I'm Leo Sidrin, WBGO News. Taking the stage on Tuesday night at New York's Town Hall, singer-songwriter Jorge Drexler was met with an almost frenzied enthusiasm. Some of that energy may have been due to the fact that the show, as he would later explain, had been 942 days in the making. Originally scheduled for March 2020, it was rescheduled three times because of COVID before finally happening in November of 2022. In the intervening years, Jorge wrote and recorded Tinta y Tiempo, which translates as Ink and Time. It's one of his most celebrated records in a career that spans three decades, seven Latin Grammys, one Oscar, and 15 albums. He opened the show with the album's opening track, El Plan Maestro, or The Master Plan, which recounts a kind of creation story of love on planet Earth. In Drexler's rendering, physics and poetry make beautiful bedfellows. In the opening lines of the song, he sings, it was the Mesoproterozoic age when that visionary cell in a silent and heroic act, had a revolutionary idea. Tired of dividing by himself, he looked longingly at his neighbor, decided to mix, learned to laugh, and the story of the chicken and the egg was born. Corría la era del mesoproterozoico Cuando aquella célula visionaria It's hard to find many popular artists who bridge the divide between science and art so comfortably. But these kinds of contradictions have been at the core of Drexler's story from the very start. His own creation story is the stuff of legend. 
It was nearly 30 years ago when Drexler, at the time a young ear, nose, and throat doctor in Uruguay, decided to give up his medical practice, move to Spain, and try his luck as a professional songwriter. Jorge once said that it took him 10 years after he left medicine to figure out how to integrate his relationship with science and technology into his art. But eventually it became a major theme in his work. For example, on Tuesday, he performed songs about the emotional implications of telecommunication, the almighty algorithm, the law of conservation, and the sentimental potential in a screensaver. That song, called Salva Pantallas, is dedicated to his siblings in Uruguay. In the chorus, he sings, I keep your photo in the corner of my screensaver. On Tuesday night, the audience sang it with him. Given the importance of language, meaning, and communication in his work, it's a complicated question for a writer like Drexler to make himself understood in English because so much of the art is in his words. On Tuesday at Town Hall, he did his best to bridge that language divide by speaking in English in between songs. And he asked that his Spanish-speaking fans, who clearly made up the majority of the audience, join him in hosting their English-speaking neighbors. If you're sitting next to a Spanish-speaking person, you can maybe, you know, make a friend. You know, languages are bridges, so let's cross it. Let's cross the bridge. Jorge Drexler is on tour in the United States this month. Along the way, if there's a bridge to build, he will undoubtedly do his best to build it. I'm Leo Sidrin, WBGO News. Larry Goldings is one of the most accomplished, respected, and admired Hammond organ players alive, and much of his career has been devoted to that instrument. His early work with Maceo Parker and with John Schofield cemented his reputation as one of the funkiest and most elegant keyboard players of his generation. The trio he formed in the early 90s with guitarist Peter Bernstein and drummer Bill Stewart has been a pillar of his musical life for over 30 years, and the three have remained united for decades. Their most recent record, Perpetual Pendulum, was released earlier this year. The recording session for that album marked the 30th anniversary of the release of their first record together, the 1991 album, Intimacy of the Blues. But in fact, the history of the group stretches back even further. Goldings and Birdstein had met in high school, and they met Bill Stewart a few years later. But the trio began working in earnest during a residency at the club Augie's on the Upper West Side. They developed a sound and an approach that endures to this day. Larry told me, The trio that became me and Bill and Peter came out of an earlier Augie's experience. Augie's, which is now Smoke, of course, had a real immediate connection with Peter. I feel like we're very much kindred spirits. And Bill was very mature and very confident about his approach and about his sound. And I was, you know, truly inspired by those guys by, as musicians. Time passed, Larry moved to LA, Bill and Peter stayed in New York, and Augie's, the scene of so many important moments in the development of the three musicians, that club eventually closed and later reopened as Smoke. But the more things change, my friends, the more they stay the same. Because the trio of Larry Goldings, Peter Bernstein, and Bill Stewart plays this week at the newly renovated Smoke at Broadway and 106th Street. Larry has lived in L.A. for years now and carved out a reputation as not only a jazz musician, but also a highly sensitive session player, sideman, collaborator, songwriter, and film composer. He's on so many incredible records. Basically, if you're putting together a dream band, you probably want to have Larry Goldings in it. So there's nothing funny about Larry Golding's music. But as he tells me, he always loved comedy, too. I was always into making people laugh. That's how I made friends when I was little. A case in point is Larry's alter ego, Hans Groiner, who claims to be an Austrian accordion player, pianist, educator, and Thelonious Monk specialist who has improved Monk's music by making it more relaxing, as he says, and less offensive to the ear. My name is Hans Groiner. I am from uh, Austria. 
When I was 10, I heard the Thelonious Monk, who uh, I did not like. But as I grew a little older, I uh, discovered that there was some great potential in uh, the music of Monk, if only certain elements of it were changed. Larry Goldings, Peter Bernstein, and Bill Stewart play this weekend through Sunday at the newly renovated Smoke Jazz Club at 2751 Broadway. To hear my complete conversation with Larry Goldings, visit wbgo.org studios. I'm Leo Sidrin, WBGO News. To say that Christian McBride is prolific is both obvious and an understatement. He's a musician, an educator, an artistic director, and a broadcaster. As you may know, he's the host of Jazz Night in America right here on WBGO. But watching him perform at the Village Vanguard this Tuesday, on the first night of his two-week residency, one was reminded that for Christian, it starts at the base. At 50 years old, he's appeared on more than 300 recordings as a sideman, has made nearly 20 as a leader, and is an eight-time Grammy Award winner. There's nothing trivial about his career. But as he picks up his bass to play, there's an almost mischievous gleam in his eye, a childlike excitement, and a clear sense of joy. This week, he performs with New John. It's one of a handful of projects that he leads. McBride made a point of introducing the musicians by way of their hometown. Trumpeter Josh Evans from Hartford, Connecticut, drummer Nasheet Waits from New York City, on the bass clarinet and tenor saxophone Marcus Strickland from Miami, Florida. Speaking on the phone a few days later, he told me, When you study people and when you appreciate people and you want to learn as much about them as you possibly can, even in terms of their musical background, knowing where they're from is a really nice place to start. McBride doesn't need to say where he's from. The name of his band says it for him. John means... A person, place, or thing. It's basically a noun, only in Philadelphia. The group is preparing for a new release next year, and they opened the set with some of that material. They played with a looseness that only experience and expertise can bring. McBride simply calls it... Mighty rusty, but we had fun. While much of the material from the set was new, they did revisit some of the tunes from their 2018 album, including McBride's original John Day, written for a childhood friend who was tragically killed by gun violence. McBride started to talk about it, but then thought better of it and simply said, you can feel me, I don't need to say it. Yeah, I feel like in this era of so much online grandstanding, this sort of demand to speak up on all things all the time, I think there's an overload of preaching to the choir, and I refuse to stand on the uh, verbal soapbox and give my opinions on things. You know, I think there's so many opinions being spoken about everything all the time, everywhere these days. You know, I, I wonder if somehow it loses its weight. Rather than preaching to the choir, McBride used his 2020 project, The Movement Revisited, to preach from the choir. That record, devoted to four icons of the civil rights movement and featuring a choir, will be available on vinyl for the first time in January of next year. I'm excited that it's coming out on vinyl. The recording has a second life, so it's exciting that I get to re-announce this. Christian McBride's new John will be at the Village Vanguard just long enough to get comfortable. Then next week, he'll continue his residency at the Storied Institution with another of his projects, Inside Straight. It's true you don't need to look too hard to find Christian McBride these days, but just to be on the safe side, you might want to get down to the Village Vanguard to be sure. You are surely Christian McBride on base. Thank you very much, ladies For WBGO News, I'm Leo Sidrin. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.